Please turn me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 8. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. This early epistle is written to encourage these believers in their faith and to also help them understand more about the eternal things of God. Up to this point, Paul's commended these believers for their faith, hope, love, service, and heart for the lost. He's defended himself, his ministry, and his motives. And then, as we have seen in chapter 3, he's expressed his deep love and concern for them as they are now suffering for their faith. Paul ended last time by encouraging them to stay faithful and focused in the midst of their many tribulations because the tempter is relentless and our call is to be more relentless in fleeing temptation and in pursuing Christ. Let's find out what Paul says next, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, has we also uh, to see you, therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Now the first thing we see here is the fact, which is this, that Timothy brought good news to Paul and Silvanus, and I say, yes, amen to that. I love hearing good news. Anybody like to hear good news? Yeah, as opposed to bad news? Good news is good. (laughs) Remember what happened? In 3.1, Paul said, When they could no longer endure it, they sent Timothy to Thessalonica to find out how, how they were doing in Thessalonica in their faith. See, Paul was away from the Thessalonian Christians, and he was deeply, intensely concerned about them. And there finally came a point where he couldn't take not knowing how they were doing anymore. And so that's when Paul and Silvanus sent Timothy Go and encourage them, he said. Find out how they're doing and, and, and minister to them. And then come back and report to us how they're doing because it's weighing so incredibly heavily upon us. So Paul sent Timothy when he was in Athens. He then moved on to the city of Corinth. And that's when Timothy returned to Paul with the good news, the good report that the Thessalonian believers were indeed remaining faithful and strong in the midst of adversity, and in the midst of hardship again. What a relief. What a relief. And Paul just feels a massive weight come off of his shoulders as he hears this good report about the Thessalonian Christians. You ever been there? Um, Recently I had some concern about my dad's health. It was weighing on me. I was concerned about my dad. My dad finally went to the doctor. It took him forever to go to the doctor. He's a guy. Um... He went to the doctor. The doctor said this, Burke Kyle is the healthiest 80-year-old that I've ever seen. Yes! See, that's good news. What a relief. But oh, how much better to hear a good spiritual report like Paul heard. I mean, if my dad got a bad physical report, hey, he's still going to heaven. He loves the Lord with all his heart. But if it's a bad spiritual report, well, that has eternal ramifications, which is much, much, much more serious. I've had bad, uh, many bad spiritual reports over the years. So-and-so isn't doing well. So-and-so is running off in sin, making really bad spiritual decisions, spurning the Lord and spurning the people of God. No! Oh, no! 
so-and-so has left the church and she's married a non-Christian even though she knows better. She's chosen sin over self and over the glory of God. No! Why? Why would you do that? So-and-so is back hanging out with his old non-Christian friends. He hasn't been in church in over a month and he looks like a rebel more than a man who wants to please and glorify Christ. No! Please! No! It, it's devastating to hear. And so... The good news about the Thessalonians was a massive, huge, enormous relief to Paul. What good news did Timothy bring back to Paul first? Timothy brought back some good news about their faith. In other words, their faith was strong. Yes, (laughs) that's what I want to hear. This tells us that not only was their faith the real deal, that they had true saving faith in Christ as Savior and Lord, but their faith was also growing in the midst of their many tribulations. It was progressing. It was flourishing. Back in chapter 1, Paul mentions their work of faith and how it's gone out to everyone. And he says how he remembered their wonderful work of faith. And the good news is that their work of faith is still strong. This is interesting because some Christians get all bent out of shape when they see works and faith appearing together in the Bible. However, there's no need to get all bent out of shape here because the Word of God is crystal clear that sinners are justified, that sinners are declared righteous by faith in Christ alone apart from any works. Paul makes that crystal clear in Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Boom. That's very, very clear. See, as sinners, we could never cover up our guilt before God with any amount of good work because our works can't come close to ever erasing our record of sin. Sin has wages and works don't and can't come close to paying those eternal wages. Instead, God justifies us and God declares us righteous and right through the finished work of His Son, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty of our sin as believers on the cross and achieved righteousness for us by His perfect life of obedience. See, He did all the work in saving undeserving sinners like us, because of who He is, and because of what He did on that cross, as our substitute for sin, He did all of it. So biblically, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But now look, having been justified through faith alone, a Christian is now called to the work of faith, Paul says. So again, it's by grace that we've been saved through faith, not as a result of works, no. But then, look, We were created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. So true faith bears forth tangible results based on our love for God and on our desire to glorify Him with our fading lives. So look, Timothy brought back a good report about the faith of the Thessalonian believers. Talking about their continuing faith in the Lord. They already had saving faith. This is their continuing faith in the Lord. Their faithfulness, their work of faith, their their faith lived out. What's faith? Hebrews 11.1 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Substance describes a support, a, a confidence, a steadiness, an assurance, and a foundation. 
It tells us that faith provides the firm ground on which we can stand while we eagerly await for the promises, the amazing promises that lie ahead for us in Christ. The word hope means to look forward to with with confidence to that which is good and to that which is beneficial. It means to expect with the implication of receiving some good benefit. So faith is what gives substance to our hopes. Okay, so what then do we hope for? Well, we hope for the things that God has told us that we haven't yet fully realized. Incredible things like heaven and all the glories that go along with it. Faith looks at all those hopes. And faith helps us to patiently wait for them. And it gives us an assurance and confidence to patiently endure through all of it until we receive those promises in full in glory. So faith is a solid ground that allows us to confidently live for the glory of God through all the hills and all the valleys of this fading life. Now look, everyone has faith. The real issue is this. What is a worthy object of our faith? For us in Christ, our faith is in God and in what God says to us in His perfect Word. We believe that God has spoken to us, and while God hasn't told us everything that there is to know, He has told us enough about truth, salvation and life and we put our trust in him this God who created all this God who knows all this God who never lies this God who is truth and even though we can't see him we are full of confidence that what he says is real and what he says is true and our lives reflect that reality with faithful living that's faith the work of faith faith is also described as the evidence of things not seen the word evidence means conviction So faith is the conviction that the unseen exists. This takes things a step further for us because this implies action. See, true conviction is willing to stake your life on your hope. As I've said before, A.W. Pink uses the analogy of two men standing on the deck of a ship looking in the same direction. One sees nothing, but the other man sees a distant steamer. The difference is that the first man is looking with his unaided eye, whereas the second man is looking through a telescope. Well, faith is the telescope that brings the future promises of God into our present focus. Faith enables us to see the unseen world that the natural unsaved man can't see. And for us who have put our faith in the Lord, we are confident, we are certain, and we are sure because God himself has revealed these things to us. The Bible tells us that faith is a gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. And those who have true saving faith, we are certain in what God has said and we are certain in what God has done. In fact, we are so confident that we will not only live out our faith, but hey, we will also die for our faith. So, you have first entrusted your soul into the care of God, which will then result in a lifestyle of loving obedience to the Lord who saved you. Well, that was the Thessalonians. Their faith is strong. Their faith is, is, is being lived out. Their faith is seen. Their faith is known. What does that look like? Well, it looks like Abel in the book of Genesis who offered up a more excellent sacrifice than his brother Cain. See, in faith, Abel gave an offering to God from his heart based on his love for God and done for the glory of God. And it wasn't road. It wasn't done out of mere duty. No, it was done 
because he loved God and because he wanted to glorify God. That's what faith looks like. It's real, it's real, it's passionate, and it has God as its focus. Faith also looks like Enoch in Genesis, who was taken away and who didn't see death. See, in faith, Enoch pleased God with his life for 300 years. Think about that. He trusted God, and that trust caused him to be dedicated, devoted, and loyal, and faithful to God for centuries. See, true faith remains faithful to the end, no matter how long that may be, and no matter how bad things may become. Redeeming today for the Lord, and then tomorrow, and then the day after that, and then the day after that for Him. Pursuing God, seeking God, earnestly following after God as our primary focus and as our first priority. Faithful to Him through all of it, through hardship, loss, pain, trial, suffering, through it all. Here's the thought. Wow, His faith is proven. His faith bears results. I mean, look at him. He still trusts the Lord after all these decades and after all these centuries. That's, that's, that's faith. What about you? Strong faith that's commended like the Thessalonians also look like Noah who feared God. See, true faith fears God, which means that Noah had a healthy respect and reverence for God that stemmed from the knowledge of God that resulted in obedience to God. See, he took God and the things of God seriously. He knew what mattered. And as he looked to God, he both revered God and he loved God. And that led him to obeying him to the point of building an ark for 120 years in a land that had never seen rain. That's faith. And I want to have a faith like that. A commendable faith also looks like Abraham who obeyed God and who went where God told him to go even though he didn't know where he was going. God said, Abraham, go. Okay, where, Lord? Oh, that way, Abraham. Okay, Lord, I'll go. But but what's the final destination, Lord? Don't worry about that, Abraham. Just go and trust me. Okay, Lord, I'll go. That's real faith right there. That's faith in action. He obeyed God even when it was dangerous and confusing and hard and even when it didn't make a lot of sense to him. In faith, he did what God told him to do, trusting in the bare word of God. See, he knew that this world wasn't his real home, and so he didn't focus on the fading things of this life, but he lived for the next life in faith, and that meant obeying and trusting God, even when it meant leaving everything that you hold near and dear to your heart. Faith trusts God and obeys God anyhow. A commendable faith like the Thessalonians also looks like Sarah who trusted God and had a baby when she was 90. God said it, and in faith she embraced His promises even though those promises made very little sense. See, true faith continues and endures and trusts God all the way to the very end even when things don't turn out the way that you've planned. Sarah had her child, but the faith that's exemplified is where you trust God even when things don't turn out the way that you have planned. No, you keep trusting Him, knowing that the best is yet to come, knowing that He knows what He's doing with you. A commendable faith also looks like so many in the past who trusted God throughout their lives. And look, they died trusting God because in faith, they knew. See, they knew. Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. So they died as they lived. They died dominated by faith. And look, their faith didn't waver on their deathbed, but it remained and it even grew stronger. And so they trusted Him 
all the way until they came to their graves. That's the kind of faith that's truly commendable. And that's the kind of faith that the Thessalonians had. See, they were suffering and they were facing great affliction. But look, they still trusted God. They still remained faithful and true. They still continued to glorify God even in the midst of their many trials and afflictions. What about you? Faith. Faith. Second, Timothy reported back about the love of the Thessalonians. In other words, their love was growing. It was strong. It was firm. It was clear. And that's also some very good news because love is what is to mark true believers. Back in chapter 1, Paul mentioned how he remembered, he remembered their labor of love. And Timothy reports here that their labor of love is still thriving. Yes! That's a great thing to hear. That means that their love was seen clearly and that their love was lived out purposefully. And again, this is a massive compliment and relief for Paul to hear because love is the chief mark of a Christian. Who are we? We are those who love God and we are those who love others passionately and from the heart. And only Christians can truly do that. See, the word for love here is the Greek word agape, which is very, very specific. There are four different Greek words for love in the Bible. Eros is a word for romantic and passionate love. Philia is a word for love that we have those who are near and dear to us, our family and our friends. Storge is a word for the love that shows itself in affection and and care, especially for close family affection. But agape is different, for it's a distinctly godly love that comes from God to His people. See, agape love is a love of choice. It's been called unconditional love because it chooses to love even that which is undeserving of love. Agape love is the kind of love that God has for us. While we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God in love, He gave His life for us. And we are called to exhibit that kind of love to Him and to others. Look, agape love has to do with the mind. It's not simply an emotion that rises up in our hearts every so often. It's a principle by which we deliberately live by. And this sets us apart as Christians from non-Christians. See, non-Christians don't love like that because non-Christians can't love like that because that kind of love is contrary to their nature. Romans 5.5 5 says, The love of God, the agape love of God, is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's given to us. So again, only true Christians can have this agape love. Only true Christians can have love like this as a way of life because God gives that distinct love to us Not so non-Christians. And that seems very clear when you look around. I mean, what kind of love marks the world? Not agape, selfless, sacrificial love. No. Self-love, yeah. Lustful love, yeah. Love that benefits benefits me, yeah. But not a forgiving, selfless, gracious, sacrificial, turn the other cheek. I put uh, you ahead of me for the glory of God kind of love as a lifestyle kind of love. No, not at all. But it's a must for us in Christ. And true Christians love with this agape, godly love. First, we love God, of course, right? In Mark 12, Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. And he said that the greatest commandment is to love God. And the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor. And and that makes sense. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God 
comes first. He's the one true God, and because of who He is and because of what He's done, our call is to love Him fully and completely. How? Love the Lord with all your heart. For the ancient Hebrews, the heart was the, uh, understood as the organ of intellect and, and volition. It represented the location of one's mental activity and moral choices. Love the Lord your God with all your soul. The soul was a very life of the individual. It represented every facet of man's being, including his deepest desires and emotions. Love the Lord like that. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Stressing the fact that this isn't just an emotional thing alone for us. No, this is a well thought out thing. And look, we're all in. Love the Lord with all your strength. This phrase stresses emphasis and it may be understood as a command to love God with excessive and unrestrained devotion. With all, with all, with all, with all. Speaking of true love, of intense love, of a love that's captured your heart and of a love that affects your life in a profound way, a love that affects your life in a dramatic way. See, it's a love that loves with the totality of one's being because of who he is and because of what he's done for undeserving sinners like us. See, God wants the heart and soul of the person. God wants every part of you, not just a little part of you. He doesn't want empty religion, no. But He wants you to love Him with all your affections and with all your adoration because He certainly deserves it. Do you love God like that? Is He your chief love, your first love, the one whom you love the most? Because He should be. Who else is worthy like Him? Who else loves you more than He loves you? Who else has done more for your life and more for your soul than Him? No one. So so love Him first. Love Him most. Love Him best. What else? Because it can't end there. Love your neighbor as yourself. So if you love God, it's going to show in loving others as well. Who's my neighbor? Everyone's your neighbor. Not just your friends and not just people you like. So the call is clear. Love must mark us. Love for God and love for others. And good news, the Thessalonian Christians were loving like this in a way that's commended by Timothy. How good is that? And when Paul hears this, man, Paul is relieved. So, here's a question. What report would Timothy give about you? What report would Timothy give about us as a church? Is your love for Christ clear? Is it seen in the way you live and how you talk and what you do and what you say yes to and what you say no to and what you give to and how you spend your time, where you spend your time and so on? Is your love for others clear? Because the love of God is flowing through you to others in how you forgive and how you treat people and how you serve people and how you are patient and kind and generous and, and selfless and gracious to them and so on. Is it clear? Well, the love of the Thessalonians was clear. And I pray we are clear here because we certainly should be. Third, Timothy reported back about the good remembrance they had of Paul and his friends. Verse 6, that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. This had to have been a massive relief to Paul because it's a serious thing, right? If you remember back in chapter 2, Paul had to defend himself against the many haters who were attacking him and who were falsely accusing him. 
See, we know that Satan always opposes a good work of God, and Satan always opposes good men and women of God, especially a good apostle of God. So Paul was under constant attack by Satan and by people, both from within the church and from without the church. Oh yeah, non-Christians hated Paul, and they hated the gospel message that he preached, and they seriously opposed Paul at every turn, trying to hurt him, trying to harm him, trying to kill him, trying to stop him continually. Once he got saved, this this hatred of Paul was a continual thing by non-believers. Also note, though, that opposition to Paul happened within the church, too. And how sad is that? False teachers rising up within the church were a constant threat, and Paul was their number one target. This happened to the churches in Galatia, and it also happened in Corinth. In Corinth, the false teachers rose up within that church, They saw Paul, the man of God, as a threat to their wicked schemes, so they lied about Paul, and guess what? The church bought it. They believed the lies. Pretty soon, Paul was the enemy. Paul, the man of God. Paul, the apostle of God. He was the enemy. And it took a massive, relentless, heartbreaking effort on Paul's part to bring that church back to the truth. But, man, it was wretched. It was devastating to Paul. It was a constant battle. Paul even had to deal with people bad-mouthing him while he's under house arrest in Rome. He's in prison, and people within the church are going after Paul. It's very interesting, because there we find there was a group of preachers who were preaching the gospel. Yeah, they're preaching the, the true gospel, but their hearts and their motives were wrong. They were evil. See, these guys saw Paul as a threat to them, probably because Paul saw through them. So, as Philippians 1.16 says, they sought to add affliction to Paul, even as Paul is in prison. So, think about this. Even uh, when Paul's in prison, look, there are people within the church who are opposing him, lying about him, bad-mouthing him, trying to hurt him, trying to harm him. Well, as we know, Thessalonians was written very early on, but even so... It seems clear that there were already people who were trying to hinder Paul and who were trying to hinder his ministry, thus the need for him to defend himself in chapter 2. As John MacArthur noted, false teachers assailed Paul, as they often do to other faithful shepherds, by impugning his character and challenging his authority. They hoped to ruin the new church by destroying its confidence in the person that God had used to found it. That's right. So think of what a, think about this. Think of what a massive relief it was When Timothy brought back this good report that the church in Thessalonica had good remembrance of Paul, they had good remembrance of his friends, as opposed to having bad remembrance of Paul. Right? That means that the Thessalonian Christians weren't buying into the lies of uh, Paul's wicked accusers, which is an amazing thing. We might think, well, of course, they wouldn't listen to evil men who are falsely accusing Paul and trying to hinder God's work by hindering Paul. Of course, they wouldn't be that fickle. That is wrong. You know why? Because people are fickle. Anybody know that? People are fickle. Lies and gossip works. Even within the church. And only strong Christians... Focused Christians, Christ-centered Christians, biblical Christians are wise enough to stay away from the gossip and to stay away from the lies and see through it all to the real truth. Well, Lord help us to not be fickle here. I don't think you are. (laughs) Lord help us to not get swayed by gossip and by lies here. 
So the Thessalonians had good remembrance of Paul and his friends. They also greatly desired to see them, just as Paul and Sylvanus greatly desired to see the Thessalonians. So the, the love and the concern was mutual. It went both ways. And Paul's like, Phew, what a relief. What a relief. What, what was the result of this good report for Timothy, from Timothy? This, that Paul and his companions were comforted by their faith. Verse 7. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. Oh, that our faith would bring the same results to others. Now here, Paul says that he himself was facing affliction and distress. Both of those terms refer to the difficult circumstances that Paul and his friends faced. Affliction describes intensely hard circumstances, severe suffering and anguish, and brutal oppression and affliction. Distress speaks of calamity and and sorrow. Here we find that Paul and his friends were in the midst of real hardship, trial, and affliction, along with many worries, fears, and mental concerns. But look, the good report from Timothy about the faith of the Thessalonians brought Paul and his suffering friends some much-needed comfort. And again, oh, that we would do the same for each other. The word for comfort means to call someone to you in order to comfort, encourage, exhort, strengthen, and give life to that person even in the midst of trial and trouble. And that's what the Thessalonians did for Paul and his friends. Their faith is strong. They, they haven't caved. They're, they're enduring and they're glorifying Christ in the midst of their own serious affliction. They are true. They are bold. They're fighting sin. They aren't wavering. God is pleased. God is glorified. And Paul's like, yes! And now they're helping me to be strong too in the midst of my own trials and pains and, and afflictions. See, their faith is strengthening me. Their faith is encouraging me. Their faith is giving some pep to my spiritual step. They're helping me along in my own quest to glorify God with this fast and fading life. And how good is that? Again, oh, that we would do the same here for each other. Strengthen each other. Help each other. Comfort each other. Ignite each other. Push each other forward with your words, yes, but even more with your own example of faithful living. How you doing? We, see, we impact each other for the good or for the bad. Impact each other for the good. For the glory of God. We're all going through various trials, troubles, and tribulations. And the call is to be a great source of strength and comfort and encouragement and blessing to each other in the midst of these various tribulations. Show each other that God is still good no matter how bad life may stink right now. Show each other that. Show each other that trials can be endured with faith and with grace. That Christ is worth it even if it means suffering. That fighting sin with passion and fervor can indeed be done. That prayer really is powerful. That reading God's word with fervency and frequency is important and it has lasting results. That God gives hope even when all seems lost. That enduring and overcoming and pressing forward and being relentless in the things of God is worth it all. Even when hardship abounds. Show each other that. Thank you. 
You give me strength. You encourage me along. You give me an example that I can follow. You light a spiritual fire under my feet. You comfort me when I'm weary and when I'm weak and when I'm in distress. You make me better. Thank you. Do that for each other. Lord, help us to do that for one another like the Thessalonians did for Paul. Hey, be an encourager, not a discourager. Sin, mediocrity, compromise, caving, slowing down, being half-hearted, that discourages and it helps no one, especially yourself. But enduring and pursuing and staying faithful and battling sin and praying much and eating up the Word of God and overcoming trials with faith and with fervor, persevering to the end, intent on glorifying Christ with zeal and with passionate love. Oh, that greatly encourages all of us. And guess what? It has eternal value. Be an encourager. Lord, help us. Anybody need some encouragement today? Right? Be that. For one another. By being faithful. And Christ-like. And godly. In light of that, Paul ends with a plea which is this. Stand fast in the Lord. Verse 8. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. What does he mean by that? Wasn't he already alive? For now we live. He's already alive. What does he mean? It means... That when the Thessalonian Christians are strong in the faith, or as Paul says here in verse 8, when they're standing fast in the Lord, that that reality gives a renewed life to Paul. Isn't that cool? It's like if they're flailing in the faith, if they're wavering, if they're wagging, that brings a kind of deadness to Paul, a a Paul of death over Paul. It'd be like a sort of a, a death blow to Paul. And this is something that any pastor who cares feels and knows. That when those that he shepherds, cares for, loves deeply, and devotes his life to, when they are sinning and wavering and giving in to the tempter, it's kind of like a death to him because it's so devastating and because it's so personal to him. However, when they're standing fast, oh, it's like a renewal of life to him. And that's how Paul felt about these Thessalonian Christians who were standing fast. Oh, thank you, Lord. I can keep going. Paul says we really live when you stand fast in the Lord. That's his delight. That's his joy. That's what stimulates him to new ministry and vitality and passion. And note that when God's people are standing fast in the Lord, look, That not only brings joy and life to the pastor as it did to Paul, but also to God because this greatly glorifies and pleases God. So I say to you, stand fast. Stand fast. The word for stand fast conveys the idea of firmness and uprightness, of standing firm and of holding one's ground. The word is used of a soldier who defended his position at all costs, even at the cost of his life. He just stands his ground, he, he doesn't budge, he, he stays put and battles on for the glory of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones stated this, you can't read a New Testament epistle without finding in it an exhortation to courage, to strength, and to fortitude, an exhortation to stand and to fight. 
No one can read the New Testament without getting the impression that the Christian church is a kind of army or that it's involved in a great contest, a test of endurance, a striving for a prize from the enemies. And this whole idea of a struggle, a fight, a contention is an essential part of all that teaching. And he's absolutely right. Ephesians 6.10 says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. A couple verses later, it says to take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So the idea is to hold our ground, to not give an inch, to not compromise the truth, to fight against sin and for the glory of God, and to be strong in the Lord as we stand. The clear call here is to stand fast and firm for the truth, against the devil, and for the glory of the God that you love. It's a call to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to stand up even if everyone else is bowing down. It's a call to be like Daniel, who prayed to God and who didn't bow down to the pressure around him, even though it meant being thrown to the lions. It's a call to be like Mordecai and Esther, who put God first, even above their own comfort and ease, even above their own lives. It's a call to be like Paul, who stood strong and held God's ground with his life and with his doctrine. Sure, your friends at school will tell you to give in and to be like everyone else, but you are called to say no because you're a child of God. Stand firm. Sure, your boss will tell you to make the numbers fit somehow in some way, but you're called to say no to that because you're a child of God. Stand firm. Sure, those around you will pressure you to compromise your convictions, to not offend, to not be such a stick in the mud, but you're called to stand fast and to do what God calls you to do no matter what. Stand firm. Sure, Satan will tell you that your little secret sin is no big deal. It's not really hurting anyone except you. But you're called to say no to that sin and to fight hard against that sin because you're not Satan's child anymore. No, you are a child of God. Stand firm. Sure, your flesh will tell you to sleep in, to not serve, to ride the fence because it's much easier. But you're called to stand fast. You're called to stand firm. You're called to be a good soldier of the Lord. And the question is, are you? Because you love Him. Because He's worthy. Here, Paul's using the metaphor of a soldier in a battle, standing his ground, fighting against the enemy refusing to give in and willing to die for his cause. The Thessalonians were doing that and that brought new life to Paul and we are called to do the same here. Hey, time is rolling along. Anyone? Time is rolling along and soon we will be home. And this is our shot to glorify God. This is our shot to bear eternal fruit and to stand firm and fast before glory. Let's not waste it. So, Are you standing strong against the sin, the temptation, the compromise, the lies, the easy believism, the mediocrity, the spirit of the age, and the pressures of our sinful society? Are you standing fast and firm and strong for the Lord, for the things that truly last, for the things that please God, and for the things that afflict the wicked one? Lord, help us to stand fast, to stay faithful, to endure. Come on. Don't waver. Don't waver. Don't give in. Don't give up. Keep pressing on. 
Never quit. If you fall and get back up and keep moving along, stay faithful to the end for the glory of God. This will not only bring great encouragement, life, and blessing to the Christians around you, but guess what? It will also greatly please and glorify the God whom you love, the God whom you live for. And what could be better than that? Lord, help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, O Lord, to be a church of conviction. Increase our faith. Help us to look to you in all things and help us to stand firm here in the midst of all the assaults of the wicked one all around us in the media and in Hollywood and everywhere else. Help us here to stand firm in love without compromise. Convict us Fill us with love for you. Increase our faith. Mold us. Make us stronger for your glory. Because you are worthy. We love you, Lord. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.